Thanks for joining us for this episode of Coffee with Closers, where business leaders share insights on how to build businesses from the ground up and best practices for innovating in their industry. Hey, Nick, I appreciate the opportunity to have uh, the opportunity to interview you. So Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah. So I hear you're a top producer in the, in the Chicagoland area as a real estate agent. Mm-hmm. So tell us who determines that. Uh, Chicago Association of Realtors, uh, based on sales volume. Okay. And tell our audience who you are and, and what do you actually do. Yeah. So I'm a real estate broker and I lead a real estate team. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an office in Wicker Park. Mm-hmm. And we basically sell homes um, from the north side to the south loop, west to the west town area, sometimes even a little further, but mostly within Chicago proper. And um, that's it, man. We just hustle and try to elevate lives through real estate. That's our team's mission. So we try to help people make money in Chicago's real estate market. It's a great market to do that in. So yeah, we we have a lot of fun doing it. Awesome. And you must have done something right to kind of get that top one person status. So what, what were some of the things that you've done that made you made you yeah. stand out? Well, I think the key thing is dealing with people as people. Mm-hmm. And when I deal with a client, I, I oftentimes try to think of them almost as a family member, as if to say, if, if I were representing you and you were my biological brother, you know, how would I treat you? How would I hustle for you? How transparent and honest would I be with the process? So, or even seeing myself in the shoes of my client. If I were buying this home, if I were selling this home, what would I want? What would my expectations be? So there's a high level of um, not just fiduciary responsibility, but even going above and beyond to say, this is a person I really care about. I really want to help them. I really want to help them find success. What am I going to do? What is my book of business going to look like in my approach? Mm-hmm. And apart from just the way that you are uh, taking care of them as a customer, what are some of the things you've done from a lead gen and new customer acquisition? Mm-hmm. To generate prospects? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so kind of to just build upon that last point, mm-hmm. when we do a great job servicing clients, we try to create raving fans. Basically, that's the goal of our services to clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, a raving fan is someone we define who will repeat business, refer us and write a five-star review. Mm. That's a raving fan. That's awesome. So something we talk about in our team is if we were only paid by way of reviews, Mm -hmm. like if the transaction was only a formality, what would our business look like? Right? Mm. So it's one thing to close a transaction and any realtor can do that. It's another thing to close a transaction and have someone just saying, where can I, how can I write the review? How can I tell my friends about you? Mm. That's a very different response. And so one of our primary lead generation is actually from past clients mm. who are impressed with our services. Uh, we help them make money. We help them sell a home. We help them find their dream home, whatever it might be. And then they refer us to other clients. That's lead generation from, from our referrals. So that's a primary one. Mm-hmm. We have in the past done a fair amount of paid services for lead generation, like Zillow and everything. But these days we try to be more in-house with our marketing mm-hmm. because Zillow is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. And so if we can actually create leads from our own marketing, then when Zillow changes their game, which they seem to do every year, mm-hmm. we're not subject to that roller coaster mm-hmm. because we're in more control of our marketing. And that's something we want to grow in. It's not easy to mm-hmm. be your own marketer. In fact, most realtors, you think about it, they're doing everything. They're solo agents. So they're doing their own marketing. They're running around town with buyers. They're trying to list their own homes. They're answering the phones and they're doing all their administration. Mm-hmm. So we've actually modeled our business a little differently to where we have a team. 
we have a graphic designer, we have an office manager, we have our OSAs, our outside sales agents servicing the clients, mm -hmm. and then we have an ISA, someone on the phones. So there's multiple people involved and that allows us to be able to basically cover more ground and not spin our tires. So we do have a department for marketing and we're really in the last really year cutting back on our cost for third party advertising mm -hmm. and really doing more of that in-house. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of our latest trajectory with marketing. Yeah, I mean, speaking about what you just said, I mean, what I've seen, especially from being on the customer side, I've saw how real estate agents specifically fails when it comes to the follow through. You know, they make great promises, they make those introductory meetings, and then once they feel like the buyer isn't as warmed or at least not as active, they kind of follow through, kind of falls behind. Yeah. Right. And in, and it's true in in almost any business, but it's right. more so in real estate where, and if the real estate agent isn't actively following up, and then the customer kind of falls through the cracks and mm -hmm. they don't get the sale. Mm -hmm. So, what are some of the proactive in initiatives you've done to make sure that that doesn't happen for you? Yeah, I think a lot of people are. You know, we obviously love the low hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody who sits down with us and says, "I need to buy a home in the next three weeks. Mm -hmm. Here's my criteria." And then we take them out one or two times and they find a home. And that happens. Mm -hmm. But what about the person who's busy, who doesn't have the time to search for homes, who's maybe three to six months out or longer? What do you do? What we have found to be an industry problem is that many, many agents, after they meet a prospect, will put them on an automatic MLS search, which they should. We should all do that. I mean, that's the real-time market. It's the it's MLS has a monopoly basically. So mm -hmm. most of the listings that the general public are going to see are on the MLS. But what we do is I actually train my team to cherry pick homes, mm -hmm. and then we call our clients every week with homes that we've cherry picked. Now the client may say that's too much. This is too much interaction. Mm -hmm. Great. To what would you like it to look like? But the client knows mm -hmm. that we are proactive in our pursuit of helping them find homes versus letting some automated system find them homes. Mm -hmm. Because if the automated system can find them homes, many times the same homes that are on Zella, that are on Trulia, that are on Redfin, at some point the consumer thinks, why do I even need an agent? <laughs> well, they still do. I mean, most transactions, like I don't have the stat on that, but I'm gonna say from my experience, I can't remember the last time a buyer didn't have an agent. Now sometimes the list agent represents both parties, mm -hmm. but it's very uncommon that a buyer would walk into a transaction without representation because the system is set up to where you need it. Mm -hmm. It's just, there's too many things, technicalities that a layperson wouldn't be able to necessarily do by themselves. Obviously, technology has changed the landscape for many, many industries and real estate industry is definitely one of those. And the advent of you know Zello and Trulia and all these different you know this directory listing sites have changed how people do property searches and how do how they do real estate. So how have you you know what have you done proactively to make sure that you can stand beyond all of those technology and you know advancements that are happening in the space? Mm -hmm. Well, technology is really our ally. It's our friend. I don't feel dwarfed by it because we're very much trying to utilize all of the latest and greatest. Yeah, recently I started an experiment with Loom mm -hmm. and that's just a real simple app that allows you to record your screen and you can draw while you're recording it and send it via email and a simple link to people so you can explain things and I do that with my team all the time. You can do that with clients. So technology is, is one of our greatest 
uh, assets. And in fact, that's one, one of the things we tell our clients when we sit down with them, whether they're a buyer or a seller, is that you're gonna benefit from our team's technology. You know, we use Google Suites, keep track of all of our clients. Every home we have listed with all the feedback goes into a Google Drive, we send links. I mean, we're constantly trying to utilize everything out there for us. And basically the point is to make the consumer feel like the process is smooth and easy and accessible and technology helps us with that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where it can be a challenge is when companies, uh, other brokers or other big real estate firms start to use technology and it threatens what we do. For instance, Zillow offering to buy homes, mm-hmm. which they're not doing yet in Chicago, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But they are ch- testing that market in other, uh, I think in Los Angeles, maybe other markets around the country. Going back to, so you said the technology can become a threat. So what are some of the things that you are proactively doing to make sure that that doesn't happen? Mm. Well, I don't know that we're proactively. It's more so when, when a threat arises in the marketplace, a disruptor. Mm-hmm. And like I said, like a Zillow offering to buy homes or something. Then we've got to decide what are we going to do. So we have a guaranteed sales program. You know, mm-hmm. we guarantee to sell people's homes or we buy them. So, and many times we work with investors, cash buyers, so we can also make similar offers to, to prospects. But many times it's just finding what the weakness is and popping it. Like Zillow offering to buy homes, there's, <laughs> should be, I think, intuitive to most, but they're not gonna give you market value. Mm-hmm. They're gonna be buying that home below market so they can turn around, fix it up, sell it and make a profit. So they're just an investor, mm-hmm. right? So if we can, help the client to see that listing with an agent, even though you're gonna have to pay a commission, is still gonna net you more than a Zillow would who's gonna come and buy it outright. Well, that puts value into into the customer, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think you can fall behind with technology if you get too used to doing things one way. Mm -hmm. And using technology that's outdated, not being proactive and really knowing what's available and what's out there, and I don't, you know, I don't spend a lot of time researching this. I just am constantly networking mm-hmm. with some of the best realtors around the country who are using the different programs, different technology out there to advance their business. And then I just copy and implement. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're doing that? How is that working for you? And then you go home and test it out in your marketplace. Yeah, and I think sometimes even just it, some of these business principles and best practices are universal. It doesn't even matter. Absolutely. It doesn't matter yeah. whether they were in real estate or they were a, right. a consultant. Like some of the things that they do for proactive follow-up or, mm-hmm. or how to ask for referrals or the things that they may implement from a sales standpoint. All those things can be applicable and yeah. can be you know, translated into another business. And obviously, you had a, a pretty interesting past. You come from a nonprofit space, and then mm-hmm. now you're in, you know, running a, a business here. So how has that transition been for you? It's been beastly because I think when I was in, you know, I was in ministry before I was in real estate. And I studied theology, and my heart has always been to help people spiritually. So... And what I saw in business many times as an outsider before I was actually in the business world, or what I thought I saw was a lot of avarice, mm-hmm. a lot of greed, a lot of you know, pretense. And I didn't want that. But then I also saw occasionally you'd see a, a business model where it seemed like the heart or the mission of the business was truly to benefit the customer or the client. you know, And it wasn't always this quid pro quo thing. 
And so when I got into business, I had, I think, still the heart of a minister wanting to help people, but I didn't have the heart of a businessman. <laughs> so I didn't necessarily know how to marry the two or that the two could even coalesce, mm-hmm. that you could, you could have a heart to help and yet still be profitable. Mm-hmm. And I'd still say six years later, I'm adjusting and warming up to that idea because mm-hmm. it feels so foreign to me. But now I, I've, I've come to see that if you were going to give great services and we're going to help people to, to make money, we're going to help people to find their dream home, we're going to help investors to add to their portfolio or whatever it might be that the person's trying to accomplish, the client's trying to accomplish, then it makes sense that there would be an exchange of finances for services. And so we've, I've kind of come to palette that and, and be okay with that. Then the leadership side of things, running the business, having a profit and loss statement, learning how to market, learning how to develop a team, how to recruit, how to sustain, how to incentivize people so that they want to continue to contribute to your team, that they don't get bored, they don't get stale. I mean, all that is just, you know, it's what people go to school for. <laughs> I went to school and I, I learned, you know, theology, mm-hmm. which is great. It shaped my character. But the whole business side of it has been trial by fire. I, I haven't learned that. I haven't studied that. I've learned that through going real-time experience and trial and error. Are you reading any books or anything that is giving you some insights or listening to certain podcasts or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I really like John Maxwell's stuff. Mm-hmm. and good on leadership stuff. Yeah, I love that stuff. I can read that stuff all day. Presently reading Failing Forward, which is actually a book I've read many years ago, but I'm going through it with my team as well. Mm-hmm. And just reminding myself how, how perspective paradigm is so much of the game. Mm-hmm. And seeing failure as, as an opportunity to learn as a stepping stone to su- success. And it sounds very cliche, but it's hard to have that mentality to be able to take failure on the chin, not feel defeated, not own it as your person, as your identity, mm-hmm. not own it personally, but to use it and to learn from it and divorce yourself from what you're doing. I think that's one of the key things for, I see it, I think in myself and I see it in many others is that it's normal and natural, but not healthy to own what you're doing as who you are. And then when you fail in what you're doing, you feel like a failure. Mm-hmm. And so our constant sense of identity and, and self-worth is based upon our performance and our careers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the whole premise of, the, of failing forward is basically to divorce yourself from that equation and to be able to fail and not take it personally and actually learn from it. Mm-hmm. So that's one book I'm reading right now that I've, I've been enjoying and encourage uh, yeah. listeners to read it too. That's awesome. I think, you know, some obviously you've, you've kind of, like you said, you were from, came from a nonprofit world, you're in the business world, you're an entrepreneur right now. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for somebody who's aspiring to be an entrepreneur, trying to start a business or, you know, kind of getting, getting their feet wet into this whole Yeah, process? take the DISC personality test and figure out what that says about their entrepreneurial skill set because I think a lot of people like the idea. Why do they like the idea? They like the net result. Mm-hmm. I'm my own boss. I can work when I want to. I can work from home. At least in my mind, those were the things that drew me to entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. even getting into real estate. But the fact of the matter is not everybody is really wired to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So in that disc personality test, usually the, the high Ds and the high Is are the people that succeed, and the influencers and the drivers. If you're a S or a C, just very detail-oriented or very supportive, but you lack that drive and maybe that influence from relationships, 
entrepreneurship may be something you want to reconsider, at least from the standpoint of going in it alone. Mm -hmm. And I'm speaking mostly of the real estate industry right now because I can't speak to other industries, but this is what I've seen in the real estate industry. So if you're not the driver, not the influencer, it's not to say entrepreneurship isn't for you. I would just suggest that um, you partner. You find people who are able to compensate where you're lacking. And even for the people that are the fire starters, that are the drivers, that are the CEOs, they still have to surround themselves with awesome people. Mm -hmm. So I'm just a team player and I, I can't do what I'm doing in my business right now if it wasn't for my team. I give the credit to my team, really. They're, they're the ones that are out there doing it. Mm -hmm. I'm just a visionary with the idea. So I think you have to know your place in the world of entrepreneurship and find your role and then be comfortable with that role. Yeah, I like the idea of that partnership because sometimes you need that person that balances you out, right? Because you, like the driver, they don't even look behind or to their side. They're just like, mm -hmm. you know, like driving forward and sometimes don't think about all the consequences or every possible scenario hasn't been thought through. Mm -hmm. And then they execute and then they realize, oh, that they hit the, hit the wall. That's right. right. And then that failure could be, like you said, that whatever the book you were just recommending, yeah. right? that, that could be detrimental to their success. But some, some of them do bounce back and then they go at it a second time or even a third time. Yeah. Right. And then, then usually may, they may succeed. Yeah. And I would say, yeah, not giving up mm -hmm. so easily, too easily is key. You know, you just got to keep going at it. I mean, that's the story of most successful people. Nobody gets it right there for very few people mm -hmm. at, at their first take, you know, hit a grand slam. So it's just trial and error, it's perseverance, it's patience. Yeah, and I would say, you know, the, the whole concept of freedom might be kind of the, the leading thing about, oh, entrepreneurship, like you said, you have the flexibility to take decisions and, you know, execute on your ideas and doing all sorts of stuff. But there, it comes, up with, comes with a lot of responsibilities and there's a lot of things that you're <laughs> yeah. carrying, right? I mean, it's uh -huh. not just, Oh, I have the freedom to do what I want, but that is the freedom also it's the illusion. demands a lot. It's the illusion, man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think it's so funny because I was having a conversation with my, either my wife or somebody else from my team. I can't remember, but basically I was like, I just want to work nine to five hours. But most entrepreneurs get into it because they don't want to work a nine to five. But these days I'm striving to work a nine to five and not a seven to seven, right? Yeah. But over the course of time and through leveraging and boundaries, you know, we've been able to have a healthy work schedule and not burn ourselves out. But I think that's important too. And again, yeah. all that is team, leveraging, relying on other people, not doing it all yourself. From my experience, mm -hmm. that's what it's been. And uh, we're little by little, we're getting there. Yeah. yeah. Any, any parting wisdom or advice for our audience? I think for me, you know, my goal in 2019 is to keep the main thing the main thing. You know, for me, that's my relationship with Christ as a Christian. And I think you have to be in tune with um, what's most important. If, if, it's, if you're there, if you're doing what you're doing, you know, just for the money, uh, there's a scripture that says, He who loves money never has money enough, nor will he be content with an abundance of wealth. And so there's a mirage in chasing another dollar bill. It can't be about that. But when you make it your ambition to elevate lives, to invest in people, to benefit others, to serve others, the money follows. It's funny how that happens. You don't focus on money, you focus on helping people and, it, and the money follows, the success follows, you know, the accolades follow. Uh, but those should never be the pursuit. So that'd be my parting words of wisdom. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Appreciate thank you. All right, Sam. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by 1IMS. 
a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe.